0: Birding means adventure, and the American Birding Association and Rockjumper Worldwide Birding Tours are at it again. In July of 2019, we will explore Colombia, the ultimate paradise for birders with almost 2,000 species, including more hummingbird species than any other country. We're excited to gather again to see our friends, while also raising important funds for the ABA's conservation and community initiatives. Pre-register now for what is certain to be an amazing time. Tanagers, parrots, ant pittas, and the ABA family await you a short flight away. Get more information at aba.org slash travel. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I, as almost always, am your host, Nate Swick. I wanted to start this episode with a... I don't know, a slightly more somber tone than I usually take. If, if you're a fan of birding podcasts, you probably know Bill Thompson III. He is the host of This Birding Life and Out There with the Birds with Ben Lizdis. He is a well-known author, speaker, magazine editor. He's very much a birding bon vivant. He has actually been a guest a couple times here on the American Birding Podcast. Those are always a lot of fun. Um, if you listen to This Birding Life, you know that in the last episode, Bill shares that he is dealing with a, a health crisis. He was recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And If you're not aware, well, first, I'm, I'm sorry you had to hear it from me, but also you know consider that a recommendation to listen to the back catalog of both of those podcasts. Well worth your time. I I can't claim to know Bill better or even as well as many on the ABA staff. I, I would run into him at festivals, enjoy my time with him. We'd talk about birds, about baseball. He was passionate about both. I'd say we were founding members of the Bird Podcast Mutual Admiration Society. Uh, He led the way for a lot of the things that I do, like uh, blogs and podcasts and traditional media stuff. Um, In many ways, I am am just in his wake. He is definitely a big figure in the North American birding community. Uh, One of those people who, even if you've never met him, uh, you feel like you know him. He is going through chemo now, which is rough, Uh, but if anyone can pull through, it's BT3. So Bill, if you are listening, uh, we at the ABA are thinking of you and we are rooting for you. We hope to have you back soon. On the show today, a eulogy for a great Black Hawk, but first, uh, let's talk border wall. Birder environmental activist and valley resident Tiffany Kirsten is here to talk to me about the current state of play in the valley uh, vis-a-vis the construction of a border wall that threatens several of our most cherished birding sites. All that after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your rare bird focus for the end of January, the first part of February 2019. I didn't plan it, but appropriate, given the subject of this episode, was a nice run of rare birds in the last couple weeks from South Texas. In addition to a long-staying rufous-backed robin and a yellow grosbeak whose hosts have tentatively opened the doors to visitors, there have been at least two blue buntings in the valley, and this week a golden-crowned warbler and a crimson-collared grosbeak have made appearances at various locations. Those are all code four birds. These sorts of North Mexican influxes tend to be associated with periods of cold weather. Many of these birds are, to some extent, altitudinal migrants, and cold snaps push them into lower elevations throughout northern Mexico and occasionally across the border into the United States. Minnesota had at least two records of brambling in the last week. This Eurasian finch has a very scattered pattern of vagrancy across the ABA area. They are obviously most common in western Alaska, where they're annual, but they are capable of traveling long distances. And there are records from as far afield as North Carolina, Arkansas, and Nova Scotia. Florida had a couple good birds this week from opposite directions. A banana quit in Miami-Dade County is more or less expected a couple times a year somewhere in South Florida. More surprising, though, was a black-tailed gull among the massive gull flock that can be found every winter at Daytona Shores. This would be a Florida first record and a crazy record for a bird that is commonly found in East Asia. Daytona is a long way from Japan. This is just a little bit of the rarity landscape in the ABA area for the period for the whole thing. Check out the ABA blog every Friday morning at blog.aba.org or join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups ABA Rare. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. The lower Rio Grande Valley of Texas is one of the most special places in the ABA area for birders and naturalists, uh, hosting some exceptional species found nowhere else in the U.S. and some iconic birding locations. Uh, It's why so many birders have watched the political machinations around the proposed construction of the border wall in the valley so closely, and why we, along with many other stakeholders, have mobilized to protect those areas with with some successes. Uh, One of those on the forefront of this issue has been uh, Tiffany Kirsten. She's a biologist and educator. She's on the board of the Friends of the Wildlife Corridor. Her article, Walling Off Wildlife, was published last year in the Bird's Guide to Conservation and Community. And she's with me now to talk about birding around the border wall and the current state of affairs in the valley. Uh, thanks for joining me, Tiffany. Thanks for having me. Sure. You, you've lived in the valley for several years. Um, what has been your experience birding around these border walls or border barriers and even you know losing areas to the border wall?
1: Right, right. So... um So I live uh, just outside. I live in Mission, Texas, which is just outside of McAllen, which is Hidalgo County. And a lot of folks don't realize that we already have border walls down here. I'm not sure the exact number of miles we have in Cameron County, but in Hidalgo County, we have 22 miles of walls um, that were put in during the Bush administration. And a segment of those walls actually sliced a visitor center, nature center, visitor center from the whole trail system. Um, and that site is Hidalgo Pump House World Birding Center. Um, Hidalgo Pump House World Birding Center was, was, um, formed in, I believe, 2006. And I think it was 2008 when they got a border wall. (laughs) And, um, when that was put in, they put in a a gate, um, with a gate code. And everyone here was told that the gate would be remaining open during business hours. Um, it's a city-run nature center with a couple of acres of city property, a handful of acres. And then, uh, five- 500 acre tract wow. of Rio Grande Valley National Wildlife Refuge to the south of it. Um, and so that, that section of border wall sliced off the city owned acreage from the one mile gorgeous, pretty little paved path to the south in the Hidalgo Bend tract of lower Rio Grande Valley National Wildlife Refuge. Um, you can still technically get into that. Uh, you have to walk down the levee and around to the end of the wall.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, you can technically still get into that, but people don't really go. And you know, this, yeah, while while I feel safe and lots of people feel safe, and actually McAllen is one of the safest cities in Texas. We were just named the seventh safest city in the U.S. Um, hmm, for our wow. population size. So you know why? While, while I feel safe being on the other side of the border wall, not a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah, um, it's just like kind of psychological. Oh, you know, I'm I'm on the Mexico side. And so with the the new border walls proposed and what a lot of people aren't realizing with all this fighting and the government shutdown over additional funding for border walls is the money that was allocated uh, last year in March of 2018 was for 33 miles of additional border walls in uh, the lower Rio Grande Valley in Hidalgo County and Star County. So that's 25 miles in Hidalgo County plus the 22 that we already have. Minus a three-mile gap that at Santa Ana. If you read the article <laughs> mm-hmm. in Birders' Guide, um, you'd see that we kind of saved Santa Ana, at least for now. Right. Um, so it's a 50-mile stretch with a three-mile gap in the middle. Um, and you know, as a biologist and a nature lover, that's really concerning for many things, um, ecotourism. Uh, We get $463 million a year in ecotourism dollars from people visiting our wildlife here in the Rio Grande Valley and um, also wildlife movement. And um, so that's going to, you know, that's going to eliminate any movement of animals north and south and south to north.
0: Yeah, you, you mentioned um, the gate and the, the promise that you that people should have access to the Hidalgo Pump House area. Do you know why those, those gates are kind of closed arbitrarily? I mean, that's got to be so frustrating for all the people who work so hard to protect that area to have all that work kind of nullified. Is it because, you know, the Border Patrol, the leadership changes and what was okay for one person might not be okay for the next person? Or is it some situation where they're saying one thing to get, you know, to keep people kind of mollified about that. And then they're kind of going back on it. Do you have any idea about what, what the situation is there?
1: I think probably the latter. Yeah. My, my, I mean, I was, I wasn't living here yet. I moved here mm-hmm. in 2013, but yeah, my understanding, my, my guess, I guess more of a guess and an understanding would be that, uh, yeah, just to keep people quiet for now. And then, you know, once it goes in, Oh, sorry, yeah, never right. mind. you know, we can't leave it open. Not much you can do. Um, after that and those gates cost like a quarter million dollars each it's it's ridiculous um and so what we're looking at with these additional 25 miles is the very first segment actually the six miles um six miles has already been awarded Mm -hmm. Uh, the bid has already been awarded to a construction company and all those six miles would be in mission texas um, the city, the city that I live in.
0: Is this the area that would be adjacent to, to Benson State Park and the and the Butterfly Center?
1: Yes. So it yeah. includes the six mile stretch includes uh, Benson Rio Grande Valley State Park, the National Butterfly Center, which uh, may sound like a federal organization, but it's actually a, a nonprofit, privately owned nonprofit. And then um, between those sites, there's two tracts of the Rio Grande Valley National Wildlife Refuge, mm-hmm. um, protected tracts. So we're looking at that we're looking at all the way over possibly an impact on Chimney Park RV Park and the Riverside Club which are two businesses along the river mm-hmm. um which would be located along the very east section of that 6 mile stretch um and then all the way to Lalamita Chapel Lalamita Mission um which is the, the reason that the city of Mission got its name it's named <laughs> after that yeah. little chapel um and that chapel is so close to the levee system that um, it would be in within the 150-foot enforcement zone. So I guess going back a little bit and talking about the location of these border walls, they have to go on the levee, right. um, on the levee system, because if they go any further south, they're considered being built within the floodplain, mm-hmm. um, which would be a violation of international treaty with Mexico.
0: Yeah, one of the things that struck me about the article that you wrote in Birders' Guide was your your description of the experience that you had last fall as part of a group that traveled to D.C. to talk to lawmakers about the proposed border wall. And you mentioned how many didn't even know what it means to put a wall in Texas because, you know, the river meanders and it's in the floodplain. So construction has to be on these levees and you're seeding all this this riverfront, which is thousands of acres, which is where the great birding sites are, among other things. I mean, it's shocking how... People don't know how people who are you know who are who are putting together legislation to pay for these things don't know that.
1: Right. Yeah. The, thankfully, we brought maps with us. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, you yeah. just show, hey, there's a river here. The by by the way, and you can't just put you know a giant concrete and steel structure in the very middle of a river. Um, so yeah, some some locations here in the valley, the border wall would be a mile and a half to two miles north of the the river itself, and putting six thousand five hundred acres of conserved green space um, behind those walls, whether it be state, federal, um, nonprofit, county parks, that kind of a thing, and four thousand five hundred acres of private land.
0: Hmm. What what do these places mean to the people who live in the valley? I mean, we know what it means to to birders who travel down there, and these are these are fantastic spots. They're they're you know, irreplaceable. But what does it mean to the people who live there? Not just for naturalists, but for the residents who who need access to nature.
1: Right, right. I mean, tamaripen thorn scrub—that's our native habitat type here. It's only found here in the Rio Grande Valley and in northern Mexico. Here in the valley, less than three percent of that habitat remains. Lower Rio Grande Valley National Wildlife Refuge was created as a corridor refuge, um, essentially a string of pearls along the river. So it was. You know, it was realized that we don't really have any large tracts of contiguous forest that can be preserved. And so Fish and Wildlife Service said, "Okay, well, let's look at this, you know, and if we save this tract and this tract and this tract and all these little tracts all together, Mm -hmm. they're connected by the river. So the idea is the reason the Fish and Wildlife Service purchased these lands is because they were connected by the river so that wildlife could move from tract to tract uh, throughout the river and there would be a higher wildlife value. To these tracks, than individual, you know, secluded tracks. This connectivity of the river, and so the border wall would literally undo pretty much a hundred percent of what U.S. Fish and <laughs> Wildlife was trying to do. Yeah, in terms of uh, of the community, the community has so few places to recreate. You know, you think mm-hmm. about three percent of the native habitat remaining. What is what is left um, in terms of recreation? A, a track at the local school. McAllen always comes in as number one or number two for obesity and diabetes um, in the entire United States. You know, and so beyond beyond the wildlife factor, beyond the ecotourism factor, uh, people's love for wildlife, the importance of the ecotourism dollars, is this just general need for wellness and healthy, you know, exercise locations in the valley? And I see that when I go to Benson State Park. You know, there's a lot of winter Texans and a lot of ecotourists in the winter time. Um, in the summertime, it's all, it's all locals, you know, people going, taking their family out to go fishing in the resaca there, just going, enjoying a nature walk. You know, a lot of these people might not be super, super avid nature lovers, but that doesn't make it unimportant to them.
0: Yeah. Um, I first started going to South Texas in the mid nineties because my grandparents were winter Texans. Um, so we'd go down there and visit them. It was actually where I kind of started birding in, in some ways. And um <laughs> Yeah, and, and and like a lot of the places that you're describing are places that they used to go. We used to see people there, like uh, like the what was the Riverside Lodge near Benson. That there's like a restaurant that's right on the river. It's just beautiful mm-hmm. little place. And and obviously everyone used to go to Benson and stay in the in the trailer loop when that was open. Uh it's just you know my my own personal experiences with the valley of I've been there you know a handful of times since then, and I've seen it change little by little. Every year, sometimes for the better, uh, for things like uh, you know, Estrella Grande and all the great new parks that they've created that you that you were talking about. But also, you know, it's I used to I used to be able to go to Sable Palm, and now you have to go through a gate. Like, what are they going to close that gate off at some point? You never know. It seems softly arbitrary.
1: Sable Palm actually has already. Um, there were funds allocated last year for thirteen, I believe, is the number thirteen gates. Um, at openings in existing portions of border wall and sable palm is about to get they could start construction in a day oh, sable geez. palm is about to get a gate
0: yeah and yeah. The, the
1: gorgas science foundation is not taking a stand Hmm. Um, on that. And I'm not sure why they're not, because if they get a gate, that site will most likely close.
0: Yeah. So you're kind of talking a little bit about the current state of play in the Valley, which everything is very much in flux. Uh, I know that the section of the wall, we talked about the section of the wall adjacent to Benson. Um, It's scheduled to start in February, you know, just to establish a timeline. I am talking to you on February 1st, uh, this episode is scheduled to release on the seventh. Uh, construction is supposed to start on the fifteenth, but you mentioned to me earlier that that may not happen. Is there any reason for that? Is it because of local pushback or the recent shutdown or, or something else?
1: I don't think it's about either of those. I th- well, so the the issue, the big issue with the six miles of of border wall construction that they've awarded to this company mm-hmm. is that they don't own the land. Uh, right. The federal government literally said, okay, construction company, here you go. We're going to give you X amount of dollars for these six miles. And then they went back to the landowners. So I'm not sure exactly what the conversation has been with the state as far as Benson State Park. Uh, but I do know with the National Butterfly Center, you know, and some of these other landowners, they're getting, they're getting notifications um, for eminent domain,
0: mm-hmm. which is
1: usually a fairly lengthy process. And there's right. actually... A couple of hundred court cases still open from the last round of border walls <laughs> Jeez, 10 years yeah. ago, um, where the, it was never figured out what they were going to do about these private lands. So some of those those places where it wasn't ever figured out never got border walls. Mm-hmm. So they're going and telling these landowners, hey, this is eminent domain. Oh, by the way, you know, essentially we screwed up. They they didn't screw up. They knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. But essentially they're saying, oh, oops, we accidentally already awarded the bid. So we need <laughs> your land like immediately.
0: Yeah, it's trying to pressure them. It sounds like they're trying to pressure them a little bit.
1: Right, right. Yeah. It's so backwards and it's yeah. so wrong. Um, and so they are slated to start construction on the two tracks of the Lower Rio Grande Valley National Wildlife Refuge. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So in between Benson and the National Butterfly Center, and also uh, west okay. of, west of Benson.
0: Yeah. So yeah. So I I saw the the map that came out earlier this week, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes that showed, you know, where they were going to put the 150 foot zone and then the map and there was this, like this little little short section of wall and I was like that this is so strange like why are they only why do they only mark that as the wall and not the rest of it but that that's the reason because they still need to get that land right huh all right well that explains that
1: I had applied last January for the assistant manager position at Benson State Park mm-hmm Um, interviewed in July and I just got a notification on January 29th, three days ago, that, um, that they canceled the hiring of the position. Hmm. So uh, that's really not looking good for Benson State Park. Benson State Park was donated by the Lloyd Benson family in the Mm -hmm. 1940s. Lloyd
0: Benson, the famous uh, Texas politician.
1: Yes. Yes. um, To Texas Parks and Wildlife with a stipulation that if the park were ever to no longer be open to the public for whatever reason, that land would be right back to his family. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we're probably looking at. Uh, there's a lot of mixed messages coming from Benson. I know Governor Abbott just, I uh, know uh, Senator, Senator, Senator Hosa, I believe, just submitted a request to exempt Benson from a border wall. And, um, but then, you know, but then they're canceling the hiring, right. um, yeah, for the park, the means, director, yeah. the the manager there is already at retirement age. So that's really a non-issue. So yeah, mixed, mixed messages on yeah. what's going to happen, um, huh. with not hiring, um, for the positions and, um, our Senator trying to push for an exemption for the park. No one really knows what's happening. Um, yeah. some mm-hmm. of the Texas parks and wildlife folks have said that. The, the park, they, they're planning for the park to remain open during almost the entire duration of the border wall construction. And that also they're planning on the park being open after a wall goes through. But then we're seeing a lot of mixed messages about yeah. that too. And really, I can't imagine, it's really hard to imagine any of the parks um, in the Rio Grande Valley existing um, with a border wall and with a gate. Right. Um, the park is slated to get a gate. It's just once it's under customs and border patrol control um, you know, it doesn't even really matter what Texas parks and wildlife decides it wants to
0: do. So if these, if these places are spared, I I had read some time ago and I I forget where, but it was something about the reasons for the border walls. Part, Part of it is to prevent people from crossing over obviously, but another part is to sort of encourage people to go to the gaps where they can be more easily apprehended. And you know, and that, That situation seems like it would be very problematic if they were to leave open things like Benson and Santa Ana, uh, because then you'd be encouraging a lot of traffic through those places, and it kind of messes up with their ability to be these sort of wild places. It's almost like there's a, it's almost the catch-22 of the whole situation. Maybe I'm wrong.
1: Yeah, kind of. I mean, I'm sure there would be some of that. The thing is, illegal border crossings have not been this low in more than 40 years, um, which is something that's really not, not maybe it's kind of a, maybe a little bit making it into the mainstream news now, but most of the immigration, most of the illegal immigration to the U.S. has been people overseeing their visas, coming over on the bridges. Uh, most of the, the drug movement has been mm-hmm. over the bridges, you know, through the ports of entry. So, you know, if we want to crack down on border security, it makes a lot more sense to put money into surveillance, Mm-hmm. techniques at the ports of entry and uh, and the, the people who are crossing the river you know they're seeking almost all of them are seeking asylum and so they're coming and the policy is it's a legal method of immigration to set foot on u.s soil and say help me um and so these aren't these aren't dangerous right. people you know i i live three miles from the border and i go for a walk with my little bitty dog mm-hmm. um you know all the time by myself, without a gun, without pepper spray, I've never in the last five and a half years yeah. had a single incident. So, you know, there, I, I've seen immigrants, I've seen immigrants, you know, but I've never once felt uh, yeah. endangered in the least.
0: So, you know, the way things are changing almost every day, it, it's hard for those of us who you know, aren't on the ground there to, to stay current. Um, how can people follow along with this stuff? What resources would you suggest to people who are interested in, in keeping up on this?
1: Our uh, group that's been working hard on multiple facets of this project have a Facebook page. Mm-hmm. It's called um, "If you just look up No Border Wall," mm-hmm. um, it's No Border Wall on Facebook. That's
0: where I get most of my information. That's where I found that map that yeah. I talked about earlier. <laughs>
1: yep, yeah. and we've been sharing a lot of articles and stories and um, facts there too. Yeah. You know, and, and the other thing, the other thing. This is probably what I should have started this
0: interview <laughs> with: is
1: border walls don't work. Yeah. They don't work. There's, if you go by the existing border walls here in Idoka County, there's ladders everywhere. I'm not kidding you, everywhere. And sometimes the Border Patrol will, will pile them up and they'll stack them near the end of one of the sections of border wall. You know, they don't, I should say, border walls don't work for people, but they do work for wildlife. Yeah. And um, it's only a matter of time before we have the issue that we had in 2010 where Benson State Park and Santa um, Ana National Wildlife Refuge, amongst other nature sites along the river, were underwater for four months. I
0: remember the pictures. You know, that was we unreal. we had a big yeah.
1: flood. And, um, and at that time, you know, it was uh, the, the wildlife could climb up and over our, our flood control levees, mm-hmm. which, for those who aren't familiar, is, a, you know, essentially a grassy hill with a, with a gravel road on top and then a grassy hill on the other side. So some of these animals, you know, um, bobcats, armadillos, you know, everything, Texas tortoises, anything that can that can't fly, um, could climb up and over the levee and go find somewhere else to live for the next four months. Yeah, right. <laughs> Until their habitat dried up. Um, and so the border walls here in Hidalgo County would be levee walls, um, which is still a border wall. Mm-hmm. That's a linguistic Issue that we've been having is that people aren't understanding that a border a levee wall is a border wall, right? <laughs> um, and so they would carve out the southern third of the levee, southern third of this raised gravel road, and replace that sloped hill with a fifteen-foot concrete wall, right, vertical. Um, and on top of that, they would put about eighteen feet of steel bollards. And the the border walls that are slated to go in here in the valley are identical to the ones that we already have. Mm-hmm. Um, So you're looking at an animal showing up and, oh, wait, I'm kind of stuck. I guess I'm dead. Literally, if we have another flood like we did in 2010, when we have another flood like we did in 2010, because nature is cyclical, it's only a matter of time, everything that's south of those border walls will be deceased.
0: Yeah, I remember seeing photos of um, Texas tortoise shells on the side of the border levees that they they just drowned. They weren't able to get over.
1: Yeah, and uh, Hidalgo Bend, um, which is the... The Hidalgo Pump House World Birding Center, right? The, the southern tract of land there. I know the biologists at the time did a survey and they did find a ton of Texas tortoise shells. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they can only they can only assume all of the other things that died right. that weren't quite as easily traceable, um, you know, vertebrate, vertebrates without shells and and things like that where their, their remains just washed away yeah. um, or, or decayed over time. So it's a it's a big issue if you think just of just of the wildlife death alone. Yeah. So many facets to this issue. <laughs> yeah.
0: And those of us who want to help, what do you need from us? What can we do?
1: We need everyone to call their lawmakers.
0: Yeah.
1: As soon as possible, call everyone in DC, call your senators, call your representative, you know, put pressure. We we have a graphic on the the facebook page the no border wall facebook page we have a graphic recently posted on there Mm -hmm. of the people that we specifically are needing to target
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um and even if you say and you think oh well you know my representatives are in favor of no border walls anyway we still need to put pressure on them because what we're seeing is some people kind of caving like oh well you know maybe a little bit maybe this and we really we really need absolutely no more border walls in the Rio Grande Valley or the rest of the U.S. They, the bottom line is they don't work it doesn't matter your political views you know um, it doesn't work immigration hasn't been this low in decades.
0: Yeah from a purely pragmatic perspective you know this is not an effective way to solve the problem it's supposed to be solving and you know it's bad for birders and naturalists and the people down there
1: right so yeah so just pushing people to to call um their representatives we also do have i can i can give you the link so you can post it cool, I will. we do have printable postcards the mm-hmm. so folks can print out their own postcards and um put in the address um of their lawmakers in dc and then mail them off um there too we've been doing that for the last two years now just putting pressure and constant constant pressure and postcards and postcards
0: yeah, and postcards. And it, it worked for Santa Ana hopefully we can it can work for Benson it did, it
1: did. you yeah. know we, we were disappointed our group when we saved Santa Ana but essentially are slated to lose of the whole <laughs> yeah, rest right. of Hidalgo County yeah um, that was a lesson for me I hadn't been involved in politics whatsoever until two years ago until all of this um it's like you sometimes you don't really know when you've one did we true. win or did we lose yeah.
0: a little a little um, both <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> but what we did learn with santa ana and uh, and that was actually written into the omnibus mm-hmm. bill physically written in that none of that money was to be used at santa ana national wildlife which is huge yeah huge that's so rarely done yeah um so what it did prove is that advocacy works
0: it works all right and
1: so we just need to keep that in mind um and we need to keep the pressure keep the pressure i do feel confident that if we apply enough pressure and work hard enough that we can save at least Benson State park and the national butterfly
0: that would be great um tiffany kirsten is an environmental educator she's on the boards of a couple different valley nature organizations i would definitely encourage readers to check out her article in last year's birders guide to conservation and community you don't have to be a member to read it uh the link is going to be in the show notes thanks thanks so much for talking to me tiffany and and thanks so much for all the hard work that that you've done keeping people informed and, and fighting the good fight on this thank you The saga of the ABA's first great black hawk, an extraordinary multi-state, multi-chapter journey that stretched over nearly the entirety of 2018, finally came to a winter vortex-induced close last week. The hawk, late of Deering Oaks Park in Portland, Maine, finally shuffled off this mortal coil in the care of a local bird rehabilitation facility. It is, to paraphrase the great Monty Python's Flying Circus, an ex-hawk. The cause of death was frostbite, or complications therein, which threatened the removal of the hawk's feet and most of its legs. Under those circumstances, the decision was made to euthanize the bird due to the obviously diminished quality of life it would experience. The rehab facility Avian Haven of Freedom, Maine, deserves a ton of credit for the completely transparent way that they went about it. They knew that this bird was something of a celebrity. They very, very clearly had the bird's best interest in mind in the way that the very best rehab facilities do. They did everything they could, but in the end, tropical hawks do not belong in New England. They physiologically cannot cope. In fact, one of the more interesting things to come out of all this in the last days of the great black hawk was that we learned that hawks that live in northern latitudes have much more complex system of vasculature in their legs than tropical hawks do to keep the blood flowing and to prevent the very frostbite that eventually claimed this bird. So really, unless the bird was to move on of its own volition, this was the way that it would always have to end. And, And frankly, from an animal welfare perspective, euthanasia by trained professionals is an objectively better way to go than wasting away in the cold and wet with frostbitten legs. But man, what a ride we had! In a way, 2018 is very much the year of celebrity birds, and and while a certain hot duck in Central Park taught people about the joys of unexpected diversity among something as mundane as park ducks, even if that unexpected bird is more or less farm-raised, this great black hawk was a symbol of the joy of birding itself. I think birders sometimes feel a little guilty for succumbing to the thrill of the chase and the appeal of the list. I, I... Personally, don't think we need to apologize for that. It's a a big part of our birding culture. It's a big part of why the ABA exists in the first place. And sure, there are self-indulgent aspects of it, but it also means that we get to be a part of these incredible phenomena. And there isn't a single aspect of this story that isn't completely incredible. There's the fact that birders in Texas, Alex Lamro and Javi Gonzalez found it in the first place and got amazing photos. Then Christine O'Leary Murphy, found it in Maine, and she posted it to What's This Bird, which no one could believe, but there it was. And internet sleuthers even found the street where it had been taken. Those photos have been taken using Google Earth. The bird is eventually refound. More photos are taken. Tom Johnson comes along, compares the photos, and finds similarities that prove that it is the same bird as the Texas bird. And then it it turns up for a very long stay in a totally accessible public park in Portland so that hundreds, maybe even thousands of birders could see it. There are there are currently nearly 1,500 photos of it in eBird, uh, meaning that it might be the most photographed single wild bird on the planet ever. And when you've got a bird like this in such a public place, the rest of the world starts to notice. Uh, there were innumerable birders flocked. Headlines. I'm going to forgive it this time. There were people going to the park who would never think to go birding and taking photos of the thing with their cell phones to show their friends. And while there, you know, they get to talk to birders. And to our credit, we do tend to be earnestly and appropriately excited about these sorts of things, which in turn gets other people excited. There's even a banjo tribute to this bird by Portland musician Troy R. Bennett. And this is, I guess, what I really mean by phenomenon there's the bird and then there's the birders that we all get to sort of stand around slack either in person or virtually at this thing as a community was pretty incredible. Our opportunity to be amazed by the unexpected bounty of birding to share that this great black Hawk story will resonate beyond the death of the bird, like good stories always do. So thanks to those who are part of this story uh, and, of course, to the wayward hawk itself, you done good. Take it away, Troy. You're the hawk that flew the wrong way. You came and decided to stay. Oh, but how were you to know about the winner's bitter cold? You're the hawk that flew the wrong way. You're the hawk. American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Join the ABA in our 50th year and celebrate with us. Members get access to our great publications and help support the many free resources that the ABA provides to the birding community here in North America and beyond. An e-membership is a great way to join at a reduced cost. You get access to the magazines online online. For thirty bucks a year, make sure that you let us know, and we'll send you some ABA fiftieth anniversary bird of the year stickers. More info is available at aba.org/join or aba.org/e-member. Special thanks to Kevin Krebs of Vancouver, British Columbia; Benjamin Ewing of Gainesville, Florida; John N. Bissell of Grimes, Iowa; Austin Rowe of Randolph, Kansas; Mr. Bloomer Reed of wilmot Illinois; Charles and Kendra Brown and their children, Nathaniel and Francis from Spring, Texas, Greg Warmink from Austin, Texas, Michael R. Smith from Hendersonville, Tennessee, Susan Lanier of Bellbuckle, Tennessee, Paul Narrett of Ashburn, Virginia, John Ebert of Columbia, South Carolina, Karen Strong of Conifer, Colorado, Chris McMillan of La Jolla, California, Stephen Nance of Portland, Oregon, Douglas Burkett, Arrington, Virginia, Luke Riley of Boonville, Indiana, Garrett Kenny of Pullman, Washington, Sarah Kettlecamp of Tallahassee, Florida, and Linnea Basden and Joshua Myers, both of Portland, Oregon, all of whom recently joined the ABA or renewed their membership and noted the podcast as a reason. Thanks for making me look good, folks. Welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's Planning on cashing in on the Great Black Hawk mania by selling these sweet little crackers with a picture of the hawk on them, marketing them as the hawk that flew the wrong wafers. Technical production is by John Lowry. He's in the middle of penning the definitive rock opera about the Great Black Hawk saga to be called either Beauty and the Beast, the Beast is Frostbite, or Bye Bye Birdie 2, Birdie's Revenge. We're still workshopping this. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Meese. They're web guides. They're working on an Instagram filter that turns every photo of a hawk into a young, great black hawk. You can apply it to your neighborhood hawks and see if you can elicit the same response. We're, we're riding this thing as far as it goes. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com birders, or on Twitter at ABA. In honor of the great black hawk's successful residency at Deering Oaks Park, we would urge the city of Portland, Maine to change the name of the site to Black Hawk Downs. We'd also not look down on a large bronze statue in a prominent location just to keep the squirrels on their toes. Questions, comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.